This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. Since October 7th, we've seen so many people who supported Gila Munster all of a sudden turn around and say, well, hang on a minute. They're Jewish. They're Israeli. We, we can't support this anymore. And I, and I thought to myself, well, I was Jewish and Israeli before October 7th, too. Hello, bonjour, shalom, and welcome to Culturally Jewish. I'm David Sklar. And I'm Ilana Zakon. Join us as we explore Jewish arts, culture, and identity in Canada. On this week's episode, we chante and chasse with drag performer Gila Munster. Mama always wanted me to be a doctor, but I became an artist and that really shocked her. Now I'm interviewing people in the biz, pros, and newish, but all of them are artists and they're culturally Jewish. Hi, David. Hey, Lana. So you're back in Calgary now. How's that going? It's going pretty, pretty well. Basically, I returned home and I had to go immediately up to Banff. I don't know. Have you ever you been to Banff? You had to go to Banff. Oh, poor you. I I was forced to. Yes, I had a, I had a project I had to attend. I've never been to Banff. It's on my bucket list. When I lived in Vancouver, I didn't have a car. So it's really hard to get to Banff without a vehicle. Um, I would love to go. I know that they have a lot of really cool opportunities for playwriting and residencies. It's definitely on the bucket list. Tell me more. Yeah, so basically they have this great program that is both national and international, the Banff Center for the Performing Arts. So I was going up as an actor to read some brand new scripts from oh. um, Canadian. Yeah, it was. It, That's awesome. And they spoil you broad in there. I think it's every actor's dream to spend several days to weeks on end there because you get fed, you get put up in a hotel room, you then get to read these wonderful plays and sometimes discuss them and go in depth and get to meet these playwrights and get to meet wonderful performers. Do you know Emil Gladstone by any chance? I don't think I do. He was the one who sort of, have you ever heard of Onegin, the big show across Canada Onegin. that made it? Rings a bell. Onegin. Okay, so he he's Vancouver-based as well, too, and he was running the program. So it was just great to meet him, to get to know um, oh, these people. Oh, Amiel Gladstone. Yes, I have heard of him. Yes, I, yes, yes. We've never met, but his name came up a lot, and then the pandemic hit. So I never met him. Well, he was talking to me during about the pandemic. He had this show that I thought was absolutely wonderful called Onegin, a very Russian story. And they'd been working on it for years, and I saw it in Calgary, and it's been touring across Canada. And then they finally, finally got accepted to do it in Moscow. And then the pandemic hit, so they had to delay it. And then next, when they finally were ready to promote it in the, in Moscow, in the original Russian language, what happens? War breaks out. Oh and because gosh. of the sanctions, because of the sanctions, the show was still going on. They were able to see it on a tiny screen on the camera, uh, their, on the director's camera. So they got to see a little bit of it. But because of the sanctions, they can't see any royalties for it. So the show was a oh. huge hit in, in Russia, but they're getting none of the returns. So it was just a very like... Oh, that sounds like a very sad, sad story. Your show is an international success, but you're not seeing any of the returns for it. My gosh. Out of personal curiosity, how did you get involved with being an actor at Banff? Was there someone invited you or you applied? Because I've always been really curious about, and maybe there's some people listening who are curious as well. Absolutely. I highly recommend it. Basically, there was a position opened through Theatre Alberta's website. Uh, I applied just as an actor to do some reading. I got accepted. They're doing it over several weekends throughout December and January. So I believe a whole different cohort of actors are coming up. And what they used to do back in the day, the Banff's 
the Bath Playwrights Lab used to select a bunch of actors for the two-week program. Right. And I know there's been some cutbacks lately, so they are not inviting actors up for the time being. It's usually just the playwrights. But hopefully that returns because it was it's great for a bunch of Canadian actors to come together and share this experience for two weeks time, really living in Banff. It was, I would love it, it's that. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience. I highly recommend it if it comes back. That's awesome. I feel like we're in a really weird time right now because as most people know, it's so funny because normally people do not follow actor news, but everyone that I know seems to know about the strikes because people were like, oh, how does it affect you? Does it affect you? Oh my God, it's over. I got texts from my mom and, you know, um, <laughs> So we're at a weird time because normally around this time of year, maybe you get, you know, a last few couple gigs before Christmas and then it's dead. And then it, especially yeah. in Quebec where I am, it's very quiet usually during the winter because of the snow. So a lot of productions don't like to come here and film. And for a theater, you know, even in Vancouver, like maybe you're doing like a Christmas show or something, but a lot of things kind of slow down. But because the strike just ended, I wonder if that's going to change. What What do you think? I uh, I was obviously in Montreal and I wasn't doing any auditions or anything like that. But as soon as I got back to Calgary, there was one show which I was able to audition for. There still is voiceover work happening yep. periodically, even even now in the last dying days of the year. I know. That's for sure. Me still too. I, I suddenly yeah. oh. started getting a bunch of voice gigs, um, which I'm very grateful for before the year closes out. Exactly. So there's still a few things happening, but it tends it'll be very quiet for the end of December, beginning of January. Uh, until hopefully a return with vengeance for so yeah, a lot of us can work. So. And absolutely, theater, film, TV, whatever voiceover, uh, we just hope it comes back to Canada. But if if nothing else, at least there is Hanukkah coming down the pipeline right now, and there are Hanukkah festivities. Uh, Alana, do you want to say what we can expect maybe with our next guest? Sure. So Gil Munster, who I actually had the pleasure of meeting at the Jewish Futures event that we talked about last episode, um, is going to be joining us today. Gila bills herself as a Jewish American princess, a cross-stitching, cross-dressing one, and we're very excited to have her on the show with us here today. And she will be hosting the fifth annual Eight Gays of Hanukkah Queer Jewish Variety Show, benefiting Machne Lev, Canada's only queer and Jewish sleepover camp. Let's take a listen. Hello, Gila. Welcome to the show. Shalom. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you. Before we get into all the nitty gritty, I would love to hear about how your character was born. What inspired you to be a Jewish drag queen character or drag princess in your case? Yeah, my first time in drag was at an event called Jew Paul's Drag Race, um, which was organized by Sija at the time. It was hosted in the Toronto Gay Village. And I was the only uh, Jewish performer that evening, which was interesting. I think that very quickly it became obvious that there is this niche in the market. Um, there's a lot of drag performers and they're all doing very similar things. You can go down Church Street and in Toronto and see 20 different drag queens on the same evening and they're all doing the splits. I can't do the splits. I'm not that bendy. Um, so I decided that I had to do something else. Um, Gila kind of came to me because um, I was working in makeup at the time, putting makeup on other people, and I had a history of performance, and I figured, well, I can probably do that myself. And that's what I did. I combined my passions for performing with my knowledge of makeup artistry, and Gila was born. 
Uh, the Jewish component has definitely taken time to develop and it's kind of grown as my own Jewish identity has grown. Um, right around the time the Gila Munster was created, I had gone on Birthright um, and it was a Jewish queer delegation, um, which was the first time in my life that I met other queer Jewish people and uh, realized that this was something that I could live my life like and uh, have a future. And um, as my Jewish identity and my Israeli identity have uh, solidified in my mind, Gila's Judaism and her Israeliness have also solidified and become more of a, a central draw to her character and her act. And where did the name Gila Munster come from then? So Gila is Hebrew for joy, and it's only one letter away from my uh, my boy name. So I figured if somebody called me Gila, I would at least turn around and realize they were talking to me. Uh, the Munster component, it's a little bit of a tribute to my early love of Lady Gaga. She calls her fans, uh, fans little monsters. Um, and also a tribute to me being very lactose intolerant, Munster of the cheese. Uh, so, I mean, lactose intolerant Jews, well, who would have thought? Exactly. Exactly. I was going to say that is the commonality between many, many Jews. <laughs> I always start with a show with who here has been to a drag show before and who here has IBS. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> So while drag before, let's say in like the earlier part of the 1950s, 1960s, it was very underground. I was reading an article about Toronto's oldest drag queen. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole researching your upcoming uh, Eight Gays of Hanukkah show. Um, and this drag queen was talking about how back then drag performers were really trying to pass as more like natural looking women and had names like Michelle, like this particular drag queen that I was reading about. And how now the the names are much more zany and the makeup is very exaggerated and it's become a lot more mainstream. Um, not that the, the act itself has become less queer, but that it's less needing to be hidden. And, you know, you don't have to worry about cops coming to raid your shows, I hope. What is that experience like? Um, for drag shows, first of all, before we go into the story time, to become this mainstream phenomena, what do you think that's done for the queer community? What do you think that's done for gender representation? It's a fascinating question because on the one hand, we do think that for a second, you know, drag drag has become very mainstream, but it really hasn't. You might turn on TV and see one drag show, and that's true, and that's already, you know, leaps and bounds further than where we were. But in most cities, you will still have to go looking for it. Um, Toronto, I think, is very much the exception. Places like New York, Toronto. Um, I've had the opportunity to travel this year to the prairies, um, out to northern Ontario, and drag is not something that you see very often in those places. Now, in saying that, I think it's also important to acknowledge where drag came from. So drag originally came from the theater and it goes back to ancient Greek times. It goes to Shakespearean times when women weren't allowed on stage and drag was a very common part of theater going. The phenomenon that we've seen of drag becoming this idea of subversiveness and gender expression and queerness is a much more recent one um, about the last century. And what's fascinating is that Jewish theater and drag have always gone hand in hand. And there's a fabulous book called um, A Rainbow Thread. It's, a, uh, it's an anthology of queer Jewish history. And what it shows is that 
queer Jews and queer drag queens and uh, uh, Jewish drag queens, we've always been part of the story. It was just never talked about. I mean, even this, think about what we're doing right now. How many drag queens has the CJN written about before? Probably not that many. A few, uh, actually. I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, we interviewed someone last year exactly for uh, for Pride. But, well, but fair now point. I'm offended. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, D David and I both come from theater backgrounds, and I know when I was learning theater history, especially in Shakespearean times, um, from what I remember from school, you know, men would play all of the female roles. So that part I know about. I'm curious to hear about like the Jewish part of that. Was it similar where women were not performing? So men were playing all the roles, let's say in like a Purim spiel or something like that. Can you give us an example? So I'm not a historian by any means. And there's people who can speak a lot better to this. Um, I did a fabulous talk actually this year called um, From Kibbutzim to Cabaret. Um, with a UCLA um, professor uh, about the development and history of Jewish performance and Jewish dance and how drag kind of fits into it. And she shared with us um, that it was more of the vaudeville kind of um, scene that queer Jews and the Jewish theater kind of overlapped with. Um, I think that there's better people to talk about it than me. Uh, I can kind of speak more to the present, which is that Jews have infiltrated uh, drag, if you will. Um, we look at Drag Race and some of the biggest names that have come out of it, and they are Jewish. Um, we we look to what's happening in the Israeli uh, theater scene, and for uh, the last twenty years, you know, there's been men portraying women's roles in theater. I think back to one of my earliest uh, experiences as an Israeli um, with theater. It was a musical for children of Alice in Wonderland. And it was never clear to me why the character uh, of the Red Queen, the Queen of Hearts, sounded so much different than everyone else. And only in hindsight do I realize that was a man. And uh, when I talked to my parents about it, it turns out this was an actor who was known for portraying um, women's roles as well. So. I don't think it's necessarily as new and revolutionary as we think it necessarily is, but it's definitely gotten a different connotation, especially the last few years with um, the uh, extreme right kind of taking it and turning it into something it's not, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. We will talk about that soon. I just want to bring up the facts of the Jewish community coming into this. Last year, I attended a, a drag event at a conservative synagogue. I was pleasantly surprised it would take place at a conservative synagogue. And I want to know, do you think this is an example of, let's say, Jewish institutions looking to appear diverse and open? Or do you see this maybe as a genuine desire from Jewish community members themselves wanting to see more queer content at their temples? That's a really interesting concept. Um, I've had the privilege of working at Jewish institutions. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed, and I think we all have noticed, is that young people are not um, attracted to Jewish institutions these days as much as perhaps their parents were. And that a lot of these institutions like uh, temples, like Jewish schools, um, they're struggling with membership. And one of the repeating complaints that I, that I would hear from young people is that they don't see themselves represented. I think that it's a genuine desire to meet people where they are. I don't think it's performative. Um, I'll give an example. Uh, this year, I was lucky enough to host the sold-out Shabbat dinner uh, for Pride at Holy Blossom. And 
it was an incredible celebration. But then you look at their history as a temple. They've been putting on this kind of programming since the 90s. So they were the first uh, Jewish temple in Toronto to be putting on a queer uh, Jewish group, uh, social group, and they supported the formation of one at York University, which at the time was, of course, known as the Jewish University. And uh, so I don't think it is performative. I think that there's so much to say about Judaism and queerness and how would they overlap and how we share a lot of our values. And the people who argue otherwise, I think, are subverting the faith for their own uh, agendas. Can you elaborate on that? So when we examine the things that the uh, you know the people think about queerness and about drag that they critique it things like it's destroying families or it uh, goes against god's wishes or this isn't natural in judaism of course we say that we are all created in god's image and so it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me to uh, you know critique the way that somebody is and the way that their naturalness, quote unquote, is. So that's the the part I think that most speaks to me. But then also, these texts were written, what, two, three, four thousand years ago? And they were written at a time when things like paper didn't exist. They were written at a time when mixed uh, fiber clothing was forbidden. So things have changed. And Judaism today, I think, is a lot more accepting and a lot more diverse than um, than some people would have us believe. So during the pandemic, you switched. You were doing mostly drag shows, but then you switched into drag story time or drag queen story time. Can you, we'll, we'll get into a minute of the nitty gritty, but can you give us the history behind drag story time? So drag queen story time started in San Francisco in 2015. Um, and the idea was to bring drag queens to public libraries so that they could share stories with kids. Now, the question, of course, is why do we need to do that? And the answer is sometimes kids don't have that representation. So I'd look at myself. I grew up uh, first in Israel and then in um, the GTA. And I didn't meet another queer person until I was probably around 15 or 16. And that time of you know going through puberty as a queer person, trying to understand my place in the world was extremely vulnerable. Um, I was, uh, you know, prone to depression and uh, suicidal thoughts. And if I had had those connections to the queer world of knowing that I have a life beyond those really difficult years, that could have saved me a lot of heartbreak. There was a period in time, I don't know if you all remember this, when all we heard about in the news was uh, gay kids killing themselves. It was like, two, three years when that was all that was covered in the news. And imagine growing up at that time and realizing or or realizing that you are queer and looking at the news and all you see is death. So by providing this narrative of celebration and um, honoring these kids, we are hopefully providing them with a safe space to grow up. That's all we want from them is just to make it through. I'm sorry that you went through that um, and appreciate your openness to, to sharing it. It makes me think about a trend right now that's going on in general with queer media, even in film. I know for the longest time, almost every single gay movie that came out was horribly depressing. And now you see movies like Love, Simon. And um, there's a couple that came out last summer. Heartbreakers. Heartbreakers. There's, there's, 
it's starting to change and they're starting to create just regular fun movies that happen to be about people that are queer. Just to be a bit of a devil's advocate here uh, for the purposes of our conversation, I'm curious why drag has become the symbol of expression or or social progress or acceptance as opposed to, you know, just reading the books about LGBTQ people or going to take them to a film like what do you think drag offers that makes it the thing that people are using in order to create more of that acceptance visibility um for for kids to feel more seen and do you think that have you experienced yourself having done this now for the last few years have you noticed um a shift or kids being able to uh, speak more freely about gender expression or queerness I packed in like three questions in there. So take your time. (laughs) Yeah. I think the thing that makes drag so appealing to kids, of course, is the visual component. Um, Think of story time at the library. Oftentimes, they're around 20 to 30 minutes tops uh, when they're hosted by a librarian. And the kids are running around. They're not paying attention to the story. When you come to a Gila Monster Drag Queen story time, it is an hour long. And the kids can't take their eyes off of it because I'm covered in glitter. I look like, you know, a fairy tale character. And um, it's really just an excuse to get them in the seats and get them listening. That's it. If I was doing it out of drag, they would not be paying attention to me. And it's the same thing, actually, with other types of activism that I do. Um, When I did a lecture series at the JCCs this autumn, or when I did um, lectures about inclusivity for the Toronto uh, unions, people invite me as Gila because I am a spectacle and because they want to pay attention. But um, it's really the message behind it, I think, that it, you know keeps people coming. The, the part you were asking about whether kids are responding to it, I'll give you a great example. We did a show out at the Fort York Public Library um, in Toronto And we had a a family and one of their kids was uh, wearing nail polish. And we read a story called Super Me, which is about a kid who goes to school wearing a tutu and uh, they get made fun of. And the teacher tells all the other kids that uh, they're all special and unique and like different things. And that's what makes them great. And the next week, I got a message from the mom of that family who uh, told me that the kid went to school got made fun of for wearing the nail polish and then stood up to his bullies and told them that the thing that makes them special is what, you know, makes them different and that that they got that confidence because of that story that they heard. That's just one example, but it absolutely is resonating and you don't have to be queer to take that kind of story, you know, to heart. It's, I think, a universal message. But what do you say to parents who, let's say, aren't comfortable with their kids attending Dry Queen Storytime? Because I believe now it's part of the Toronto School Board curriculum. You know, there's been pushback where some parents have tried to have their children opt out of these events and they've been accused of human rights violations. What do you say to those parents who have genuine concerns that say, I I just don't want my child attending these events? I have nothing. I have no issues or problems with the queer community. I just don't want them to attend these these programs. I'll preface um, my response with uh, a little bit of reassurance. Um, Safety is the biggest point, of course, when we're dealing with kids. We want to make sure that it's a safe environment for everyone. So just for full transparency, when I work with libraries or schools, 
I go through a lot of vetting. So that's everything from police background checks to um, many, many committees who approve not only you know me as a person, but also the content that we're going to be sharing. So these are stories that they would normally have in their school libraries. Um, and uh, so just to put people's minds at ease, this is not a random person off the street. I will also say I'm the only drag performer at the TDSB currently. You know, I'm the first one to have ever been approved. So when people hear Drag Queen Storytime at the TDSB, they're talking about me. Um, so that I think will help put people's minds at ease. The decision to make this an opt-in or opt-out program does not rest with me. It actually rests with the school board. And they made the decision that as part of their pride curriculum, which has already been part of the curriculum for a while now, this would be a capstone kind of event for the schools that opt in. So out of all of the schools in the TDSB, the principals obviously get the last choice and they get to bring me in. And this is only presented to the students at the very end of their curriculum. So after they would have had discussions about things like pronouns and gender identity and sexual orientation or whatever it is that they um, they study, I don't want to put words in their mouths, um, they would only see me afterwards. The worry I think that parents have is valid and parents know their kids best. So um, if parents feel that they uh, want to deal with this in a different way, that is between them, their child and their principal. Um, I will never <laughs> force my way into somebody's you know living room and say it's time for story time. Um, so I think it is it, it is valid to have discussions about what you want your child to see and, and things like that. But I will also just say that the reason that the um, the reason that was explained to me about why this wouldn't be an opt out kind of option is they compared it to Black History Month and how, for example, kids don't get to opt out of um, African drumming and that it is part of their curriculum to learn about these things. So that's something to to think about. How do you deal with the backlash then, personally? The backlash, uh, so there's two types of backlash. There's in-person and there's online. The online, I just don't see it. Uh, I have wonderful filters that uh, keep that stuff away from my feed. Um, it Good for doesn't you. Have a, yeah, <laughs> a you know, who needs to go through that? That's the way to go. That is the way to go. <laughs> The in-person stuff is really interesting. So I've been doing drag for five years. I've been doing drag queen story time for three or four years. The first time we've ever been protested was this May. So it's a recent phenomenon that protesting. And what's fascinating is the people who came to protest the Toronto Public Library um, event were actually from Winnipeg. So they were not from Toronto. They came down from Winnipeg. Um, that takes dedication. That takes that's a right. lot of motivation I was very to flattered. come to Toronto. Um, and on top of that, I think it's important to note these were the same people as the folks behind the Freedom Convoy. So they were standing outside of the library protesting things like abortions and vaccinations that really had nothing to do with Drag Queen Storytime. The other instance of uh, backlash we had was in Richmond Hill, where a group of masked folks wearing all white, so you can see where that's going, stood outside the library doing Nazi salutes. What that has to do with drag queen story time, I can't tell you. So I think that 
the backlash has been blown out of proportions. These are extremists who don't care whether I'm in drag or not. They just are anti a lot of things. And they happen to have latched onto this as as something that they want to do. And if they want to come on Saturday mornings and stand in the rain and uh, flying from Winnipeg, I just consider that flattery. So um, I don't deal with it uh, directly. I have uh, the wonderful police and uh, security who deal with that for me. And I have a wonderful support network of people who um, who keep me going personally. I want to talk a bit about anti-Semitism and drag. So you released a video on your YouTube channel a couple years ago, which I was watching, I was nodding along thinking, good for you for speaking up because it is really hard. It is really, really hard to speak up. And I noted something that you had said about you're afraid to talk about anti-Semitism out of drag. I would love to hear you expand on that. What makes you feel safer talking about anti-Semitism while being Gila? So I think that part has to do with um, the delusion and the illusion of confidence that drag gives me. Um, out of drag, I am—I'm uh, a law student. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm, you know pretty demure. I uh, live a pretty normal life. But in drag, I'm this fabulous character who you know gets up on stage and gets angry and gets you know excited and dances and well, not so much dancing, more just moving. Um, I find it easier to talk about anti-Semitism as Gila because what are you going to do at a drag show? You're going to stand up and start heckling the drag performer? Oh, uh, but out of drag, I feel like my voice sometimes gets drowned out. The anti-Semitism component in the queer community is so real and so timely right now. Since October 7th, we've seen so many people who supported Gila Munster all of a sudden turn around and say, well, hang on a minute. They're Jewish. They're Israeli. We we can't support this anymore. And I, and I thought to myself, well, I was Jewish and Israeli before October 7th, too. So it's it's interesting how some people have picked uh, kind of pick and choose uh, which part of me they want to support. But the organizations that have stood by me this whole time, I think, are the ones that were worth celebrating. For example, when we do drag queen story time at the library when they introduce me they say gila munster is known for her spicy israeli personality and when this all went down i was wondering if i should edit that bio and i thought to myself well absolutely not they know what they're in for um so it, it's difficult to speak up about but in drag i i just have this false sense of security and uh, confidence I don't know if it's a false sense of security. The way you're describing it almost makes it sound like it's a protective shield or a guard, like you're putting on a superhero costume, how it's landing on me. Uh, you've also mentioned that, you know, you've had shows at York University that got canceled because you just mentioned that you're going to Israel over the summer. And it just feels, especially as you already said, after September, after October 7th, that there is very little space to be a Jewish artist in these left spaces. And I think, you know, Alan and I have talked about this a lot as both artists, that there's very little room left for people who are proudly Jewish, proudly Israeli, want to stand up and still want to have a space in these arts communities. And it just feels like it's fracturing. Do you feel that it's fracturing and getting worse? Or do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? I will say I feel like it's fracturing, but it's always been fracturing. Um, there are queer establishments that do not work with Gila Munster because she is Jewish. I don't get hired in certain places because I am Jewish. I know this for a fact. On the flip side, we are creating spaces for people like us. So, for example, with the Eight Gates of Hanukkah, we are specifically going out of our way to create a space 
for queer Jewish performers who share similar values. Um, and I think that the Jewish community has really taken that to heart. So we go back to the Pride Shabbat. We go to um, the Cultura um, Arts uh, a conference that was held recent recently. There's recognition that we need to work together to create more spaces where our stories can be told. And in saying that, there's still a lot of outreach that needs to be done. So, for example, at the Eight Gays of Hanukkah this year, we have a lot of non-Jewish people attending, including dignitaries who are saying, this is nonsense. We need to support the queer Jewish community at this time. And we're not going to be, um, you know, shut out just because we want to support people. So that's the light at the end of the tunnel, I think. On that note, can you tell us a bit more about the show? What performers um, people can expect? Oh my gosh, yes. So I think it's important to realize where this came from. So the AGAs of Hanukkah started in 2019 when I was interning for Hillel at York University. So as you mentioned, um, I was uh, scheduled to perform at York University. Um, my show got canceled because I was going on birthright and the their um, student union run LGBT group felt that that was inappropriate. Putting that aside for a second, um, I called up Hillel and I said, what do you have to offer me? And they said, whatever you want. They kind of gave me a blank check and they said, go for it. Um, so what we did was we, we took that really unfortunate situation and we created something magical out of it. We created Rainbow Jews, which was a group of uh, queer Jewish students at York University. And one of the first things that those students asked for was a party. They wanted a party for Hanukkah. Makes sense. The gays like to party. Um, and I was thinking, well, how can I pass this off so that Hella will sign off onto this? Um, and we came up with the idea of a queer Jewish variety show. So the first year we held it down in the Toronto village. We had a capacity of around 80. We sold out instantly. It was completely full to the rafters. It was an amazing show. Next year, COVID hit. Um, we took it virtual. Then we came back third year. We went, uh, we sold out at comedy bar in Ossington and Bloor. The next year we sold out at um, the uh, Social Innovation Center in the Annex. And this year, the fifth annual, uh, I was about to say Hunger Games. I don't know why I have that on my mind. Maybe it's the new movie. The fifth annual Eight Gays of Hanukkah, it's kind of the same, except there's less people fighting to the death. Um, the fifth annual one is being held at the Longboat Hall on December 17th, which is a Sunday, right after the end of Hanukkah. We did that so that there would be less of the... Uh, the usual, like, where do we go for Hanukkah? Which night do we do? After Hanukkah, it's all good. And we have an incredible lineup. So uh, you mentioned veteran drag performers earlier. So we actually have a 76-year-old drag queen who's been performing since the 60s. Her name is Fontaine. Um, so she will be performing. We have a singer-songwriter. We have a comic. We have a burlesque dancer. Uh, drag queens galore. It is a fabulous show. And for the first time, we actually have a visual artist component as well. So um, we uh, have partnered with Fenster, the Jewish gallery, um, to curate a campy um, Hanukkah-inspired art installation that will be interactive for folks to take a look at. And That's really cool. I think it's, yeah, it's really fun. We're kind of branching out in terms of what, what we define as a Jewish artist. And for the uh, for the second year now, we're partnering with Machanelev, the queer Jewish summer camp in northern Ontario, 
so that all ticket sales um, are going towards their scholarship fund. So it's a really, really good cause. For anyone listening who doesn't live in Toronto, is there any way they could support your cause, whether by donation or is there any live streaming? Um, there might be live streaming next year if we get some volunteers. Um, this year, we will definitely accept donations. So um, the www.gilamunster.com website has all the details about how to get in touch. Um, the other thing is go ahead and donate to Machanella regardless. They are a great organization, um, literally saving queer Jewish um, kids. So um, very much worth supporting regardless. And might I just add, we are looking at expanding. So um, there, it, there could be a Canada-wide tour someday. Who knows? Come out to Calgary. Do you know what? I won't name names, but there was another federation recently that... Uh, was inspired by the eight gays. Um, and that's all I'll say on that. <laughs> <laughs> Before we let you go, Gila, are there any queer Jewish books that you would recommend to our audience? Um, if you want to cry a little bit, uh, the Call Me By Your Name book, of course, is a classic, a tale oh, of- I love that movie. Two, so good. Two uh, queer Jewish um, fo young folks in the 1970s, if I'm not mistaken, who um, fall in love and life brings them together and apart and it's wonderful. Um, and then the uh, Rainbow Thread, can't recommend it enough. If you've ever wondered, am I the first to do this? Am I, you know, crazy? Um, it's, it's an anthology of 5,000 years of queer Jewish history and it is wonderful. Cool. Thank you so much. I, I think that... That'll definitely be on my Hanukkah list. So thank you. Well, Gila, thank you for joining us. Thank you for chatting with us. Have a great celebration. Have a great Hanukkah. So David, what's on your radar? Let's head to freezing cold, frigid Winnipeg, because the Winnipeg Jewish Theater is going to be putting on something called Songs and Sufganiyot. It's an evening get-together for musicians, music lovers to enjoy some favorite show tunes and holiday songs. It is free. You don't have to pay for this. You just have to register in advance. So if you're in Winnipeg, check that out at the Winnipeg Jewish Theater. I love all the well, alliteration. I, I was just going to say, because <laughs> at the Siegel Center, they're doing lyrics and lutkas or lutkas and lyrics and songs and you know, everyone's got to You've got to do it. You reach in, find those, find those great alliteration moments. Um, Absolutely. To veer away from, from Hanukkah, the Museum of Jewish Montreal has a new exhibit that is not quite as joyful, but sounds very, very interesting. It's called Back River by Montreal-based artist Sonia Bazar. So it takes its title from one of Montreal's oldest Jewish cemeteries, the Back River Memorial Garden Cemetery, um, which is in Ahansik. And the Back River's two sections are bisected by the Metro line. Um, in the 1880s, Back River was largely populated by the first generation of Jewish migrants, and it's still being used today. But there's very little information about the cemetery itself. So this exhibit weaves together themes about loss, memory, community, urbanization, um, and it combines uh, the exhibit itself combines textiles, archival documents, photography, headstone rubbings, um, and invites the public to learn more about this very overlooked site. You know, when I was in Montreal, I heard her do a uh, do a, a talk basically a few weeks ago at the Montreal Jewish Museum when they were discussing death mourning and the rituals oh, right. involved in that. Yeah. So it was great to hear from her. I heard from two other people as well, but she was present. I didn't get to attend the uh, 
her art installation exhibit, but it was nice to, to hear from her at least. You can check out the exhibit until March 3rd. All right, now let's head back to Winnipeg because also happening at the Winnipeg Jewish Theater on December 17th is um, playwright Daniel Thaw Elif, who is presenting a kind of a how-to guide for playwriting. They call it the what, why, and how of playwriting from the heart in partnership with Rady JCC. So if you are interested in how playwriting works, if you've always wanted, if you've had a play in your head for many years and you just want to get it on the page, this might be an interesting program to check out. He will discuss his writing process, where it came from, where it's going, how it overlaps with and where it diverges from other creative processes. Is that happening in person or is that online? Oh, it's happening in person on December 17th. Very cool. Flying back to Montreal for another slightly darker, it's like light, dark, <laughs> light, dark. Isn't that Hanukkah? <laughs> Finding light in the darkness. Absolutely. Oh, and we're not, we're, we're not flying back to Montreal. We're actually flying to Toronto. Close enough. Mm, even closer. Um, so at the Toronto Holocaust Museum, on December 12th, there will be an engaging conversation with award-winning journalist and author, Marsha Liederman. So Marsha is going to be shedding light on what is going on right now with everything we've been talking about on the podcast. I don't need to spell it out for you. Through the lens of a journalist for the Globe and Mail, and she herself is a descendant of Holocaust survivors. It sounds like a really interesting event at the Jewish Futures day we had um one of the talks which i believe i mentioned when we chatted about it last week was all about preserving jewish memory and uh, the event took place in the same building as the new holocaust museum and it was very interesting definitely to hear the perspective of some survivor descendants on what's going on right now so be sure to check that out december 12th at the toronto holocaust museum so we're going to be taking a bit of a break for the rest of december very much looking forward to continuing chatting with you david in 2024 I am excited to hear what your artist life will be like in 2024. Me too. Uh, I look Me to sharing... too, David. <laughs> Don't we all? Hopefully we have more, no idea what the next year will be like. than the last uh, few months. Um, here's to many gigs and lots of light. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. Culturally Jewish is hosted by me, David Sklar, and Ilana Zakon. We're produced and edited by Michael Freeman, and our theme music is by Sarah Siegel Lazar. We're a member of the CJN Podcast Network. To support our work and everything the CJN does, visit the cjn.ca slash donate to make a monthly donation and receive a charitable tax receipt. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.